it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Wednesday, October 26th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome into the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And, of course, around the clock for free on demand as part of our podcast. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Everything you need is right there. That's GuyBensonShow.com. You can follow us on social at GuyBensonShow on Twitter and on Instagram. We have a very busy show ahead for you. Later on in the program, Dr. Nicole Sapphire will join us. U.S. Senator Rick Scott of Florida will be here. And our friend and colleague Martha McCallum will round things out in terms of guests. But we begin the show with our first guest of the day, right out of the gate. It's Tucker Carlson, host of Tucker Carlson Tonight on Fox News Channel, also Tucker Carlson Today and Tucker Carlson Originals on Fox Nation. His latest Originals documentary we'll get to here in just a moment. You can access Fox Nation for free for 90 days by going to TuckerCarlson.com. And Tucker, welcome back to the show. Hey, Guy. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to have you here. Let's just play a little clip. This is the promo that's running of this latest documentary at Fox Nation that uh, you have produced, Cut 31. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage Blake Masters. This may be the most significant midterm elections of our lifetime. For months, our team was able to embed with the Masters campaign. I'm trying to show people what a new breed of politician looks like. I know it's going to be hard, but damn it, it's just important. And so I feel called to do it, even if I'm just a kid from Tucson, Arizona. Tucker Carlson Originals, The Candidate, Blake Masters, streaming now, exclusively on Fox Nation. All right, Tucker, so Blake Masters is a guy we've had here on the show back when he was seen to be kind of a long shot. He's coming up again later in the week. We're going to have him as a guest once again here on the program. You guys have been embedded with him for a while. What was it about Blake and his campaign that made you select him as the candidate to trail? Well, I knew him before. Uh, I mean, if I guess I could sum it up in one sentence, you know, having spent my entire life, more than 30 years working around politicians, they're just not impressive people for the most part. They're really not. They've got bad values. They're sad, unhappy personal lives. You know, there are some exceptions, but they're not people really you'd want to have dinner with, by and large. And I've had a lot of dinners with them. Masters is like a legitimately interesting, smart person. He's a reader. He's a man of faith, a family man. Legitimately, he had a successful business career. But more than anything, he's grappling with what all these changes our society is going through mean. And how do you respond to them? And that's something that I've just long been impressed by. So I knew him already. Um, He gave us the access. But more than anything, I have been desperate to be excited about anybody in American politics, particularly at the statewide level. Um, And I'm genuinely excited about the prospect of what he'll do. And I never feel that way. I really do have contempt for them. I wish I didn't, but I do. (laughs) I mean, fair enough. But he's an exception to that rule. 
And what's interesting is when you guys and the, the camera crew and the whole production team started down there, and I sort of alluded to this a moment ago, it was one of those races that people were saying maybe it's a second or third tier possibility if the wave gets big enough, maybe a guy like Blake Masters, sort of a flawed candidate, first-time guy, you know, candidate quality issues. Maybe he somehow gets across the finish line, but Mark Kelly's got this big lead and all this money, and that race is kind of looking over. Well, I mean, these days that is not the case at all anymore. I think Masters has overperformed that conventional wisdom. I think I think his debate performance was was really strong the one shot he had at mark kelly that's just from uh, to my eyes he did very well in that debate and i saw a poll out today he's tied despite that huge cash disadvantage he's been faced with in arizona i mean this might be a, a pretty dramatic comeback story that you guys are reporting on so i always thought he was going to win because his views match those of the republican electorate And that's the basic problem in Republican politics, I've always thought, leaving aside my own views. You know, I've got all kinds of eccentric views that are not majority views, but a political party should represent its voters. Like That's the whole point of democracy. It's a representative government. The people rule, and they do so through their representatives. And at least in the – I can't speak to the Democratic Party. I'm not a Democratic voter, but I know the Republican leadership. I know them all pretty well. They're not that interested in what their voters think. Their views on the big issues, war and peace, the economy, are very far from their own voters. Their voters vote for them by default because they're afraid of the other side. And it's just this terrible disconnect between the voters and their members of Congress. And I felt from day one, in fact, before he announced, just when I knew him as a person, that his views were consistent with the majority of the Republican electorate, and even in Arizona. So – Yeah, I'm not surprised at all. Everyone hates him in Washington, of course, because you know exactly what his life in the Senate is going to be like. He's not going to go along with Mitch McConnell or whatever. I mean, I'm sure you know everyone's everyone's pretending he's going to, but he's like a totally different kind of Republican. I I personally happen to agree with him on the issues, but even if I didn't, I would think, you know, we need a little diversity in this party. Not everybody can be, you know, the same kind of Chamber of Commerce neocon moron. Like we have enough of that. You know, we need a new flavor. And you think he's going to win? Oh, I've always thought he was going to win. Yeah, for sure. And then, you know, there are other things going on. I mean, the move in the Hispanic numbers is crazy. And Arizona is very heavily Latino, as you know. And, um, you know, that was always a huge problem for Republicans. But a lot of Latino voters have moved right, like pretty dramatically right, like a faster reset than I've ever seen in any group, big block of voters ever, maybe than there's ever been. And, um, you know, that that helps him. And it's it's just so funny. Like in D.C., everyone's like, oh, you, know, you can't criticize immigration or Latino voters won't vote for you. Really? You, it's just the opposite, actually. Like pandering to people, treating them like some, you know, boutique racial group with its own specific set of interests that are different from everyone else's talking about salsa during you know, just, just basically being a guilty white liberal loser that turns voters off like there are many hispanic candidates who are strongly for border security just because they're americans why wouldn't they be you know what i mean mm-hmm. and um and so i've never thought you know you hear people say oh well he's tough on the border you know mexican americans won't vote for him i don't see any evidence of that at all yeah, I mean, look what's happening at the border. Look, look what's happening in South Texas and the realignment down there in politics. I mean, to your point, Tucker, I got to move to another Senate race. Did you happen to catch last night's debate out of Pennsylvania? Yeah. I mean, it was actually live during my show, but I watched it later. 
And I was really, you know, I felt bad for Fetterman, to be totally honest, and angry at his wife for allowing this. You know, I've been married for more than 30 years, and if I tried to do something like that, my wife would be like, no, I love you. You can't do that. You can't run for Senate. You're brain damaged. What? No. And, like, where's his wife? Honestly, I thought it was humiliating. It was awful. I cringed. I mean, I don't like Fetterman. I don't support his views or whatever, but I'm a human being, and I just I hated watching that. Um, but I also thought it said something pretty ominous about the Democratic Party. It's like, why would you run a guy like that? He had a stroke in May. Like, they've known this a long time. It's a Democratic-leaning state. They could have swapped in somebody else. They had time. They didn't. And it, it really makes you feel like they don't care. Like, they think that they've got the system so wired. They own the media. They own the tech companies. They control the national conversation. They can run a mentally defective guy and get him elected. That's a very bad attitude. That's not a, a democratic attitude. That's a oligarchical attitude, and I, I just don't like it at all. I mean, to me, it's a story about him and his health. And I mean, I agree with you on his record and his viewpoints. He is one of the least appealing candidates to me personally that I've seen in a very long time in American politics, and I've been very outspoken about that for a number of reasons. Uh, like you, I have compassion for him and his situation. I hope he fully recovers. He clearly has not even come close to fully recovering. And yet we've been sort of told for a while now that, oh, he's coming right along and he doesn't have to release the records because, you know, that's too much. But look, he's he's appearing at events and his wife says he's fine and he occasionally says a few words and here's a doctor's note or what have you. Lefty journalists saying, oh, we've spoken to him at length. And, you know, this this NBC woman was lying about he can't make small talk. They all piled on her for giving just a tiny sliver of the truth about him, obviously. Uh, this is not just about him and his campaign. It's also about uh, a national media complex that I think sort of set up this really tough-to-watch moment last night through omission, lies of omission, exaggeration, or just sort of looking the other way. That's my view. It's a really No, I think it's a really smart point. Um, they lied about it. They're totally corrupt. I spent my whole life in this. My dad was in it. I always thought it was an honorable business. I, you know, none of my children would ever go into journalism because it's just so disgusting, and everyone knows it's corrupt. And it's, now it's just very obvious. Charlotte Alter of quote Time Magazine, which I was surprised to learn still exists, comes out yesterday with these tweets like, "Oh, I talked to Federman. He's actually pretty good in person, but you know, he's not good in large groups. He won't be good." You know, like she's just reading the campaign talking points over Twitter. She's just mm -hmm. openly shilling. She's supposed to be a reporter. What a hack! And so many of them did that. And anyway, the, the whole thing, I agree with you. It's just deeply revealing. Like, this is an impressive country. It's a huge country. It's a continental country, 340 million people. You should have impressive candidates run for the, you know, the most powerful legislative body in the world. You shouldn't put up John Fetterman. You know, you also shouldn't have Dianne Feinstein in the Senate. She's totally senile. And everyone knows it. Her own staffers say it. And they're protecting her, too. It's like, it's not even about the person. Again, I, I said – you said the same thing. You feel sorry for the man, and I, I mm -hmm. mean that. But what about the country he's supposed to be leading? You know, It's like no one even cares. It's about his personal journey of recovery. Well, okay, I've got a personal journey of recovery too. I'm not going to bore you with it. Do, do you know what I mean? It's not about him. It's about the rest of us. And um, I just think the whole – it's just like, ah, oh, it's a window into the narcissism and the cynicism of the establishment. It really is. Well, and now they're trying to gaslight us like, oh, well, maybe it wasn't really so bad. And the campaign's blaming the closed captioning, which I'll get into. We're going to have some of the audio of this debate a little bit later on this hour. 
And then now the big talking point is it's ableist and cruel and bullying to even notice what happened last night. Like, it was just undeniable. Right in front of our faces, like, well, it's cruel to talk about. And Dr. Oz is a bully. It's just – it makes your head spin. Wait, that's so – I'm I'm a little out of it. Um, I just took my dogs for a run, so I'm – I've I've been out of it for the last two hours. You're better off. Trust me, you're better off. I mean, I'm – I'm a little surprised people would even say that. I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised by anything at this stage, but, but I mean, it's like it, it tells you, though, they don't even care what voters think. I mean, I just – I had this thought last night as I'm reading about this, and this morning as I'm watching it, you know, they're going to tell us, you know, the Wednesday after the election that he got 81 million votes, and you're going to be, like, required to believe it or something. It's like – if, if the only way you would run a candidate like that is if you thought you couldn't lose. And I just think that's really creepy. Like in a democracy, you should just be very aware at all times of what voters think and always trying to please them, always trying to represent their best interests. You shouldn't like shove senile candidates down the throat of voters like they did in the last presidential election like they're doing in this one. I think they should be punished for that. Like. There are plenty of smart liberals who I disagree with, but who are still, you know, obviously pretty impressive people. Why not one of those? Yeah, competent Fetterman. Not only, and I, I don't want to seem like I'm mocking his injury. I feel bad for him, but he's also stroke aside an utterly unimpressive person. No, that's who right. Was on, you know, he's like this self-indulgent rich kid who lived off of his parents until his mid forties. Who's done nothing. He was the mayor of Braddock, Pennsylvania one of the most screwed up towns in the entire Commonwealth, and it got no better as mayor. And he ginned up all this publicity about how he's putting in art galleries or whatever, and then just left the place, the shambles, that it remains. And it's like— Well, and then he became lieutenant governor of the whole state and didn't show up for that job You know, most of the time. It's just sort of this, this ridiculous story that is even close to a Senate seat. Tucker Carlson, we only have a little bit of time left, but I do want to play you one more soundbite. This is from a different debate last night, New York gubernatorial debate. A very interesting exchange between Kathy Hochul, the incumbent Democrat, Lee Zeldin, the Republican, challenging her on crime. This is the issue on which Zeldin and the Republicans are surging in that state. Listen to Cut 26. This governor, who still to this moment, we're at, what are we, halfway through the debate? She still hasn't talked about locking up anyone committing any crimes. Okay. Anyone who commits a crime under our laws, especially with the change they made to bail, has consequences. I don't know why that's so important to you. I don't know why that's so important to you, locking up criminals and keeping them locked up. I don't know why that's so important to you. She said sort of incredulous to Lee Zeldin. Your thoughts, Tucker? I mean, I thought she was an utter fraud since she got that job without being elected when they ran Cuomo. I, I never liked Cuomo, but like, what did he do wrong exactly? No one can even remember. That was such an, such a scam, that whole thing. Um but what really strikes me is Lee Zeldin, who I've known for a while, and you know he's kind of your garden variety Republican. I don't know what happened to Lee Zeldin, but he became like really good. <laughs> you know, sometimes <laughs> the pressure of a campaign changes a person; it makes him more impressive or less impressive. You know, pressure changes people, and Lee Zeldin became way better at explaining what he believes. His beliefs became sharper and more relevant. Like he just became a really good politician in the process of this race. I'm like, I had him on the other night. I was like, I couldn't believe it was him. And I I didn't want to sound like patronizing or anything, but I, but I meant it. I wanted to say, holy smokes, Lee Zeldin. 
you're killing it. I never thought you could be this good, but he is. And I think. Oh well, yeah, and I guess he had right this this galvanizing issue that is clearly personal to him and and got very close to home recently for him and he's running with it he's hit a stride she's flailing it's still a very very blue state so i'm skeptical but i don't think new york democrats were expecting to be sweating at all at this point of the race and looks like they are at the moment tucker carlson our guest tucker carlson tonight every weeknight at 8 p.m on fox news channel you can check out this new documentary series the candidate blake masters out now foxnation.com you can check Fox Nation for free, a little 90-day trial by going to TuckerCarlson.com. That's one of your options right there. Tucker, great to talk to you. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks a million, Guy. See ya. We will step aside. We will come right back. Just getting started on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. You know, Mrs. Dixon says that I kept students out longer than any other state. That's just not true. I worked closely with my Republican and Democratic governors, and kids were out for three months. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. That was Gretchen Whitmer, the Democratic governor of Michigan, in their debate last night. It was a heavy debate night where she was pushing back against her Republican opponent, Tudor Dixon, who was criticizing the Whitmer administration for keeping kids out of school as long as they did, which is obviously a very damaging, harmful thing to children. And sort of with this smug attitude, this kind of smirk, Whitmer said, no, kids were only out for three months. What is she talking about? Well, my best friend, Mary Catherine Hamm, who is really almost radicalized by this issue, the school's issue, she was calling the Yunkin win for a while before it happened. She fact-checked Governor Whitmer on Twitter last night. The Burbio tracker, Burbio is the website that tracks exactly this stat, shows that Michigan had under 50% of school kids in physical school for the vast majority of the 2021 school year, putting Michigan firmly in the bottom half of states. Another Michigan study said that only 23% of Michigan students were in school by January of 2021. Mary Catherine says, get the bleep out with this three months crap. So there you have the reality versus the spin and the revisionism from Governor Whitmer in that debate last night. The debate that got the most attention, though, Pennsylvania. We mentioned it with Tucker last segment. We're going to get into some of the sound and the post-debate reaction coming up next on The Guy Benson Show. You don't want to miss it. Stay here. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We continue here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. 
That's our website. Podcast is always free when the show is over. All right, let's talk about what happened last night. In our preview yesterday, it was brief. I said that Republicans needed to be careful, that I thought that the Democrats with their expectations management, really lowering expectations basically down to the floor for John Fetterman was some sort of gamesmanship to try to then outperform low expectations and you know claim a victory and that Dr. Oz had to somehow thread a somewhat difficult needle of having a good performance but being patient, being compassionate, not seeming mean about any struggles that Fetterman might have on the debate stage. We know that there were lots of accommodations made for Fetterman. Only one debate, very late in the cycle, only one hour in length, and he had closed captioning that he could read off of screens so he could sort of keep up with the whole proceedings because he has some auditory processing issues, they say. Well, turns out that the memo that the campaign put out and all the expectations managing, it was not them playing games. It was them realizing how bad it was going to be because it was very, very bad. As bad as I've ever seen. It was the worst debate performance I've ever seen in my years watching and covering politics. He was physically incapable of debating and performing in that forum. I say that not from a position of judgment or mockery or anything like that. I hope he fully recovers. It has been six months. But that's just the reality. And we've been told by a lot of people for a long, oh, he's fine. He has a few very small issues, but that's really it. And everything's been exaggerated. And that that NBC reporter is a liar. Remember, the campaign was demanding apologies from NBC. Fetterman's wife, who knows better, obviously, Fetterman's wife is like, oh, this is a smear. Where's our where's our apology? Well, that NBC reporter just gave us a tiny sliver of the bigger picture that was just revealed for an hour last night on national television. It was hard to watch. I watched the whole thing from start to finish. It was hard to watch. At first I was like, oh, maybe chuckling here or there, like, wait, what is he talking about? Then as it just went on and Fetterman's performance deteriorated, I would say, it was just brutal. It was painful. Like, this guy should not be up there. He should not be running. He should not be in the Senate. He needs to be recovering from this terrible health event that he suffered back in May, back in the spring. But he's out there. He's on the ballot. Voting's been underway for weeks in Pennsylvania. Hundreds of thousands of ballots. I don't want to sit here and belabor how bad it was. We could play clip after clip. Just excruciating clips. I was actually tempted to do it anyway because I saw some of the mainstream media this morning, like CBS had a package where they edited it in such a way that you wouldn't know that it was shockingly terrible. They found like the best possible little clips they could get and made it almost seem like a normal debate. It was not nor- There was nothing normal about that. Oz was kind of normal. Underwhelming at sometimes, decent on a few things, first time candidate, first ever debate. He was fine. Fetterman was just, uh, you just, he shouldn't be there. Shouldn't be in the race. And yet, network news, morning recap, if you just got up with your coffee having not seen any of it and you, you don't have social media or whatever, you're like, oh, 
I guess that went okay. Republicans say this. Democrats say that. Okay, that's just like such a distortion of actual reality. But the clips are going everywhere. I'll give them credit. Morning Joe on MSNBC, they had a montage. Painful, like more than a minute, just clip after clip back to back of the worst of it. And you just see it all in a row. It's like, who thought this was okay to keep this man in this race? Or to not pull the plug on the debate. I mean, they would get hammered for canceling a debate. Hammered. But arguably less bad than what we just saw. So the one that you might have already seen or heard, the fracking exchange, John Fetterman has reversed himself completely on the issue of fracking. He's a hardcore leftist in basically every way. He's a radical. I'm extremely unimpressed with his life and what he's done with his life. And I'm not a fan. I wish him well on the health front, but, you know, Politically and just personally, I I find him deeply off-putting and unfit for another reason for the office that he's seeking. But one of the things he's trying to do to pivot back a little bit toward the center because he has to in Pennsylvania is not be against fracking and energy production in that state. And he had been very clearly against fracking. He said, I was never for fracking. I've always been against it. And now he's saying, no, I'm for fracking, and I always have been. These are incompatible statements. They asked him about it. He gave a bad answer. There was a follow-up. And, I mean, just, okay, listen to cut one. I absolutely support fracking. You have made two conflicting statements regarding fracking. In a 2018 interview, you said, quote, I don't support fracking at all. I never have. But earlier this month, you told an interviewer, quote, I support fracking. Uh, I, I, I do support fracking. And... I don't, I don't, I support fracking and I stand and I do support fracking. If that were the one moment, you could say, all right, is a tough little exchange and he had a, sort of an issue there with that answer, but that was not atypical. John Fetterman wants to raise taxes on everyone. He wants to deny kids in their family's school choice, even though he was a delinquent on taxes, including for local school taxes where he lives. That happened multiple times. Oz hit him on that, completely fair. And Fetterman tried to explain that it was a big lie or something like that. But, I mean, okay, here's his rebuttal in cut six. He has specifically said you have not paid your taxes and that you want to raise taxes on Americans. How do you respond? Uh, Absolutely. The Oz rule, of course, he's lying. It was helping two students 17 years ago to help them you know, buy their own homes. They they didn't pay the bills, and it got her paid. And it has never been an issue in in any of the campaign before. It was all about nonprofit. I have no idea what he's talking about. That was his answer. Ding goes the bell. Off to the next question. Just one more on college affordability. Oz had, you know, a decent answer on this. I didn't love some of Oz's answers on, you know, waste, fraud, and abuse, which is the biggest cliche ever when it comes to getting government spending under control. But, I mean, at least he was saying something that made some sense. Fetterman was asked about the affordability of college and was asked, there were multiple follow-ups, like, what is your plan on this? Everyone wants college to be more affordable. How do you do it? And this is what he eventually tried to land on in Cut 10. What is your plan to bring down the cost of higher education long term? You have one minute. You know, I, I, I fundamentally believe that every quality public university education should be very 
affordable in, in, in every state. And I think that needs to be a significant investment, you know, to make sure that anyone be able to afford to go to get a four degree uh, university degree, you know, at say at Penn State or at Pitt or any state schools to make it much more affordable. And that means inquiring a significant investment to make sure and create it affordable that every family can afford. He said afford and affordable five or six times. It's not even close to a plan or an answer. And I, like, I'm not trying to be mean spirited about it, but like, if you're looking to say, can this guy serve in the U.S. Senate? I don't even know what to say. Even listening back to it, like it almost feels dirty listening back to this. And yet you have some people kind of like pretending that it was good. Bob Casey, who's the other Democratic senator or the the other senator in Pennsylvania, because it's Pat Toomey who's retiring, the Republican. Bob Casey's a surrogate. He's out there campaigning with Fetterman. He's like, I thought it was good. I thought it was clear. I was like, what? There was a journalist on MSNBC on sort of like the post-game show talking about it. Cut 17. I think it's also really interesting. You played a lot of clips. There were moments where he was really strong, including that Bernie Sanders clip, yeah. including his very fluent and direct response on raising the minimum wage, I thought was a really strong mo- moment for him. He had some really, really strong comebacks. And and his opponent, Oz, was, first of all, he also fumbled, right? I fumble on television, right? So it's the, the, there is... I definitely fumble on television. Oz was nervous and, and hesitant at first, too. Yeah, I mean, this this happens, right? Um, but Oz also was really slippery. I would just encourage you to go watch the thing for yourself, if you haven't already. If you're a Pennsylvania voter and you're thinking about this race, that is an alternate universe that we just heard. There was some really, it's like she was trying to convince herself, really, really, Really strong moments and comebacks for Fetterman. And look, Oz also stumbled a little bit. Everyone stumbles a little bit from time to time. When you're talking on the radio, television, John Fetterman was just in a completely different category, different zip code, and like a little bit of TV word fumbling. If there were really, really strong moments, I didn't see one. I'm willing to say this good point. Score one for so-and-so, even though I disagree with it. That is just not what I saw for 60 Minutes last night at all. I see over at The View where they try to immediately come up with their own narratives. And they're like, if you want like the reflexive, immediate, lefty partisan take, which I rarely do, go to The View. And they're calling this cruel bullying. Anyone who notices a problem with John Fetterman, with any of it. It's cruel and it's bullying. It's a, Dr. Oz is bullying. It's ableism. It's, it's crazy. Dr. Oz, I actually have to give Dr. Oz credit. Dr. Oz stood there sort of acting like this was all relatively normal, and he kind of workmanlike went about his answers and got his criticisms in and got his answers in and, and stuck to his talking points, sometimes I think too closely or too predictably, but it was sort of like a, a normal-looking experience, like a B-minus for Dr. Oz. What was happening on the other side of the stage was just a a catastrophe because Fetterman couldn't process the situation properly or talk. 
remotely fluidly over and over and over again. And Oz, I think, by just playing it cool and going about his business, did well. The idea that he was cruel or bullying, it's, it's just absolutely a lie. I will use that word. That didn't happen. They're trying to make it seem like it is ableist, cruel bullying to notice basic reality that you are seeing with your eyes and hearing with your ears. It's not, look, it's not going to work. I'm not here to say that Fetterman has no chance of winning, right? 2016, the Access Hollywood tape drops. Everyone's like, it's done for Trump. It's over. And then he won. Herschel Walker, the abortion allegation. There's another one out today. He was like, oh, that's over. I, I don't know if it is over. I think Herschel could win. In a closely divided state that is a little bit on the blue side of purple, John Fetterman, they, they might just be like, eh, whatever, Democrat, we're going for it. He could win. Uh, but look, the, the momentum was behind Oz already the last few weeks. I think there's a lot of people who haven't voted yet, undecided voters, who had to watch that thing and say, OK, whatever we've been told Whatever the spin has been, the excuses, like this was not okay for someone who wants to be in the Senate. There's a bunch of stories out today about Democrats off the record or on background just freaking out, fretting about how bad this was. There was a a reporter embedded at a watch party, a Fetterman watch party. They're all Fetterman fans, super fans. They were all cheering and all excited, and the debate started, and the reporter said everything got dead silent. And people were cringing and looking away and looking at each other like forebodingly. Even his own super fans understood what was happening in real time. And this effort to pretend like it's Republican or Oz bullying just to just to talk about it or even to play the clips. And it's really just so brave that he put himself out there. I, I just don't understand the people around him. Why would you want to put him through a campaign when he obviously needs to be recovering? I mean, he is absolutely dead wrong on issue after issue after issue. If he were perfectly healthy, the the picture of health, I would be strongly arguing against his candidacy, as I have over and over again. I wasn't really delving too deeply into the health stuff. I think his positions on crime and, I mean, all of it. That's what I've been focused on in his bio. You know, this, this freeloading guy, a total hypocrite. That's what I was focusing on. Then I watched this debate. It's like, holy cow. It is worse than we realize. It has been covered up by the campaign and his wife. It has been covered up actively by some people in the media. And here we are. And they're trying to tell us that we are bad, evil people just for noticing. I guess that's the latest iteration of this saga. Because ultimately, Democrats being in control in their mind is worth anything. There's like, oh, if you you were okay with Herschel Walker, then you should be okay. It's like, no, Herschel Walker is not articulate. He was prepared enough for that debate and did what he had to do against Raphael Warnock and was perceived as the winner of that debate. No one is calling Fetterman the winner of last night's debate. I guess the Philadelphia Inquirer editors did, which is just, (laughs) I mean, there's gaslighting and then there's whatever that is. And what the Democrats have to be hoping is that there are not a lot of voters like this independent swing voter in a focus group after the debate in Cut 18. Listen to this guy. So I was definitely, uh, I'm an independent, by the way. I was definitely leaning towards Fetterman, and I think I have totally changed to the Oz side. Why? I felt that um, 
Fetterman, I felt that Fetterman just looked like he didn't have command of the facts. I do think his condition, unfortunately, is going to affect his ability to do the job. I thought Oz uh, was pretty clear on the issues, um, and I thought he presented himself well and uh, definitely threw out some plans where I didn't see any plans coming out of Fetterman. My instinct is that there's a lot more people like that who just watched. And then there's a lot of other people who are desperate to hang on to a tiny polling lead from Fetterman. They're like, nope, don't believe any of that. There's one more element of this that I want to get to, and we'll do that as soon as we come back on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's The Guy Benson Show. So the Fetterman campaign, they're just like out there going hard. Like, he won. Comms director tweeting an F-bomb. Is like, yeah, he's destroyed. It was his best debate ever, better than the primaries before he had the stroke. It's just like crazy. The other thing that they're saying is that uh, they're blaming the, cl- the closed captioning. They said, oh, there were errors in it. And it's like, well, they were doing their very best. News Nation that aired the thing, they put out a statement in response to this criticism saying, look, we were doing it at our very best. We gave the Fetterman campaign two different opportunities to have rehearsals so he could get used to it. And he didn't show up. They just declined one of them. I can't believe that they didn't take every opportunity they could to prepare, given what they knew would be the struggles and then the challenges, and they only did one practice round. They left one on the table, and then they're complaining about this. John Fetterman doesn't show up for his jobs. Back to the mayor time, back to lieutenant governor. He doesn't like responsibility and work, and even in this case, apparently, they wouldn't put in the work. They're blaming other people for what happened. We all saw it. Another hour coming up, Dr. Sapphire is next. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. A new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. 3 to 6 Eastern, every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com, free podcast when the show is over. Every day that's on demand, it is free of charge. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram, you can follow us there. Still to come, Senator Rick Scott later this hour. Martha McCallum in the next hour. We also replay part of our discussion earlier with Tucker Carlson. Stay tuned for all of that. Fox News alert. The Dow basically flat today, up three points at the close. The Nasdaq was down. This is sort of a mixed day on Wall Street. Dow was flat, 31,840 when the trading ended up in New York and the bell rang. Well, we are very happy to welcome back to the show Dr. Nicole Sapphire, board-certified medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor, best-selling author of Panic Attack. Doctor, welcome back. Hi, Guy. Thanks for having me. We just spent a lot of the last hour talking about last night in Pennsylvania and the Senate debate that a lot of us watched, and we played some of the sound from it. Um, I know that you are not John Fetterman's doctor. I'm not asking you to diagnose him over television or what have you. But when Fetterman was asked about his health and releasing his medical records, he said, well, the real transparency is him being out and about and doing campaign events and being on a debate stage and the doctors that he believes say that he's fine. And just as a doctor, I wonder what you think of that whole explanation. 
Well, you know, he's correct. The greatest transparency is to actually be out and speaking in front of people and taking, you know, unfiltered uh, questions. But, um, you know, I can be honest. Let's be honest, though. The Fetterman campaign, they're not actually doing that. They, they're limited to the debate to one because he is still having some um, issues when it comes to the stroke that he suffered from in May. Um, and also, he's not taking live questions very often. Just last week at the event when President Biden was there in Pennsylvania campaigning for John Fetterman, uh, people tried to ask Fetterman questions, reporters, and his wife actually stepped in and said he won't be taking questions today. So while I agree being in front of people is being wholly transparent, he's not really making himself that available. At the mm -hmm. debate last night, you know, first of all, I don't believe that campaign that that politicians who are campaigning should have to release medical records. I'm certainly not advocating for anyone to do that, and it's especially not John Fetterman. But here is the issue: when it comes to him's campaign, one of the biggest criticisms has been that he hasn't been transparent about some of his health issues as he's recovering from the stroke that he had in May. And so, in a way to prove to voters that he is fit and is able to, if elected, to sit in the Senate, he keeps releasing these doctor's notes, just recently, one last week. And, you know, the problem I have with these doctor's notes is they're just full of hyperbole and conjecture, and they don't really contain medical information. So, again, I don't feel that he needs to release his medical records, but if they're actually going to try and prove to voters that their doctors are giving him the clean bill of health, they should really be transparent in those medical records and not just these notes that give us very little information. Yeah, and I mean, last night, I think you can argue that was transparency. He was on live TV for an hour, and it went the way that it went. I mean, that was transparent, what we saw. And some people can sort of try to tell us that we didn't see what we saw, but we did. And to your point about the types of forums that he puts himself in or not, I see that he just gave an interview, I think, to People magazine. The interview was by email. So someone was writing his answers. And, of course, they the quotes in the story are completely cogent because someone's typing up answers. It's not really an interview. It's like a pen pal thing for someone else. So anyway, we'll leave that there for now. Voters in Pennsylvania will have to make their judgments for themselves in that race. Doctor, I do want to ask you about the COVID vaccine for children and this uh, CDC move to recommending that this become like a regular thing for school children. And I know that one of the discussions now in our politics is whether states are going to start to mandate the COVID vaccine for children as a prerequisite to attend school. And uh, the governor candidate out in Arizona, Katie Hobbs, uh, the Democrat, she kind of dodged the question, didn't seem to really know what the issue was about. And she's like, oh, you know, I don't I don't really know. I haven't really looked into that very much. Kathy Hochul in New York was asked last night and she said at this time she doesn't plan to require anything, which is you know, perhaps a you know political dodge. Setting aside the politics of it, because at some point this would bounce into the political realm and you know, CDC does this thing like, oh, we're not mandating, we're recommending. But what the CDC recommends is often an excuse for then other people to go and mandate. When you watch this debate playing out about kids, vaccines, requirements and schools, where do you come down on this broader issue? You know, I think the the vaccine mandates as a whole when it came to children uh, attending school, I've never really been for them. I do rec I do fully support 
the majority of vaccinations that are recommended by the CDC, specifically those um, that have demonstrated decades of protection against very deadly viruses, measles, polio, and others. Um, you know, however, one of the biggest controversies that's going on right now is, mind you, again, those vaccines, we have decades worth of data. And those are against very lethal viruses to children. And now you, the CDC has now just said that they're adding the COVID vaccine and not just the vaccine, but the boosters to the recommended immunization schedule for children. And what that does is that actually goes against some of our other proven vaccines. And the CDC right now is one of the biggest uh, supporters of vaccine hesitancy by doing this, by putting on a booster that has no efficacy and safety data in young children, and not to mention against a virus that is very low risk for young children, all of a sudden you have people questioning, well, wait a minute, if they're going to do that and add that COVID booster to the recommendations, maybe they did the same thing with measles, or maybe I, all of a sudden parents are going to start second guessing some of these other vaccines. And so they're actually pushing forth the vaccine hesitancy movement. And, you know, it's, it's interesting when you see the White House and the CDC saying, well, these are just our recommendations, but it's up to the state who puts together these mandates. I mean, let's be honest. They are well aware that the majority of states look to the CDC's immunization schedule for what they consider for their requirements. If you go to New York um, Department of Health, if you go to New Jersey Department of Health and many others, they actually cite the CDC immunization schedules when it comes to required vaccinations for kids to go to school. Now, one thing is, you, I, I imagine it's gonna be similar to what you've seen with the flu shot. So while kids may be required to have measles to go into schools, not every school requires kids to have a flu shot. And why is that? Well, we know the flu shot's efficacy hovers well below 50% most of the years. So I imagine it's going to be similar to COVID. If your kid's school requires a flu shot, I think it's going to be likely that they're going to mandate a COVID shot as well. Yeah, I don't think that that is really debatable because we all just lived through the last two years. We know exactly how this whole game has been played, how it always works out over and over again. And, you know, Doctor, I, I think that your point is well taken. Meanwhile, somewhat relatedly, we got the nation's report card this week. All 50 states, kids just really suffering, math in particular, but also reading across the board. Some people are trying to claim this as vindication, like, oh, school closings didn't really matter. It was across the board no matter what. And so uh, we couldn't have done anything differently. It was all politics when, of course, that's nonsense. There's tons of other data. I ran through it yesterday showing that there is a clear correlation between school closures, classrooms being shuttered, and kids performing worse across a whole variety of metrics. Uh, it's, it's gaslighting. It's a word that we use a lot, but it applies. It's denialism. It's the playing of politics, people trying to cover their rear ends for what they did to kids against the science during the pandemic. And, you know, first and foremost, in terms of, the, you know, the list of people, I would say, that are responsible for this, Randy Weingarten, the teachers' union boss, who acted sometimes almost unilaterally, almost as if she were CDC director, changing the official science for her own special interests, deep-pocketed reasons uh, against the data, against the interests of children. And yet it's like you see her interviewed on major TV shows, just like, oh, here she is, the the person on behalf of education. Here's Let's get a voice of someone who wants to educate the children, and we're going to get her perspective. And almost never is she challenged on any of this 
horribly damaging stuff that she's largely responsible for. I know you've written a column at foxnews.com about her. Just your reaction to the new data, the test scores sliding dramatically uh, across the country, and then Randy Weingarten and her role in this. Well, undoubtedly, the title of that piece is called Randy Weingarten is Bad for Kids. I mean, I'm not mincing words in this article. And the nation's report card shows fourth through eighth graders have some of the lowest reading and math scores in nearly two decades. That's just on top of the fact that a couple of weeks ago, we showed nine-year-olds had lost decades worth of education advancement when it came to their metrics. This is all a direct result from school closures and the failure of remote learning. And all you have to do is look at the timeline, despite the fact that Randy Weingarten says that she was for school opening and she is a big proponent for kids. That is absolutely false. You just have to look at the records. The data is all there. She was advocating against opening schools before there was a vaccine. Then teachers were prioritized, and then she advocated still to keep schools closed. And we even saw the emails between her, the the unions, and the CDC. They had such an intimate role in keeping the schools closed and that public health policy that the political invasiveness of the unions at this point has just been a complete detriment to our children, and they have to go. They are nothing more than a political organization, and they are not good for our children. Yeah, and it just seems like I'm just blown away by the number of people who are willing to try to come out there and argue like, oh, well, because a lot of kids suffered, even in some of the places, and it's the state-level stuff is too crude. You need district by district. There's a lot better data on this proving that closed schools were very bad for kids. But some of them are trying to say like, oh, well, see, there is no proof now. The evidence isn't there. We were justified all along. It's like even if you didn't pay any attention to all the data that I'm referencing – Just common sense. These people are trying to argue that kids being forced to try to learn off some laptop or iPad at home for months on end is like there's no difference between that and being in school with teachers present and kids and socialization. Like it makes no sense to anyone. People know in their bones that's a lie. But I guess it's the lie that they're stuck with because of the consequences of their actions. The piece that she just referenced is Randy Weingarten is Bad for Kids. You can find it at foxnews.com. The author is my guest, Dr. Nicole Sapphire. You can buy her book, Panic Attack, Playing Politics with Science in the Fight Against COVID-19. Doctor, always great to talk to you. Thanks for making some time for us today. Thanks for having me, Guy. Anytime. We'll have you back. The Guy Benson Show resumes a lot more to get to. Stay with us. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. We spent a fair amount of time yesterday on the program talking about that Florida gubernatorial debate, the one and only debate in that contest earlier in the week. This was a story that I tried to get to yesterday, but we ran out of time. I wanted to still highlight it for you. There was an open letter to Floridian voters written by and signed by a whole slew of former Charlie Crist administration officials, including some very high-ranking ones. This was back when Charlie Crist was... You know, a Republican, a Reagan Republican, he said. Of course, he has totally changed his stripes multiple times, always in pursuit of power because he doesn't really believe anything at all. But these are people who served in his administration, a Republican administration, when Chris, years ago, was the GOP governor of that state. And here is what these signatories write in their letter. An open letter to Florida. The undersigned represent former colleagues and staff of Charlie Crist. 
Together, we have known Charlie in virtually all phases of his career and public life. We are well qualified to endorse in the Florida governor's race because we have significant experience in public service to the state of Florida. The choice this November could not be more clear. We unanimously endorse Governor Ron DeSantis for re-election. Governor DeSantis has delivered for Florida. He has led our state with courage and conviction. He has demonstrated his ability to lead us through difficult times. We stand with Governor DeSantis because the stakes are too high. We urge Florida to re-elect Ron DeSantis as our governor. Now, I'll tell you who signed this in a second. But I will note what's not in this letter. They're not being nasty and mean about Charlie Chris. They probably could be. You hear stories. But they didn't get personal. They didn't dump on him. They just said, hey, we all worked with Charlie and for Charlie, and we are all unanimously in this letter endorsing Ron DeSantis, Charlie Chris's opponent. Now, that might be shocking if these were Democrats who had served in a Democrat administration under Charlie Chris. But it's less shocking, it makes more sense actually, because these are all actual conservatives who believe things, unlike Charlie Chris. Right? These are Republicans endorsing a Republican. I think it's really more serving to underscore how much Chris has changed, or at least has sort of blown with the wind, the wind of power and political expediency, where these people felt like they wanted to all band together and say, yep, we were all in the Chris administration and we are all against another Chris administration. And among the people who signed this letter are George Lemieux, who was for a while a U.S. senator from Florida, but he was chief of staff to Governor Christ. He was Christ's chief of staff and he's endorsing Christ's opponent. Christ's lieutenant governor on this letter is endorsing DeSantis the commissioner of agriculture from that era endorsing DeSantis, the attorney general from that era endorsing DeSantis, the Senate president endorsing DeSantis, and then the list goes on. So they wanted to make their voices heard. They've made this endorsement crystal clear, not mean, not negative, positive towards Ron DeSantis, but obviously the implications here, the subtext, crystal clear. Now, here's the other side of this, the other component of this. It would appear as though the people of Florida, the voters of Florida, agree with the people who signed this letter, right? The signatories are urging people to go out there and vote for Ron DeSantis. And unless we really get thunderstruck in 13 days, that's exactly what Florida voters are going to do. The early voting is not looking good for Democrats at all, to put it mildly, in Florida. They need to build a huge advantage in that category to overcome the red wave of Election Day, and that is not happening. The Republicans are almost neck and neck in that category already before the Election Day swamp of red votes arrives. So it's looking dire for the Democrats in the state of Florida, and there is a new poll out today that has Ron DeSantis ahead by 14 points. Marco Rubio ahead by 11 in the governor and Senate races, respectively. I keep saying that I am really struggling to believe that a Republican or anyone is going to win either side by double digits in a state like Florida. Maybe I need to expand my imagination. Maybe Florida politics have really changed that dramatically in recent years. I'm expecting a comfortable win for DeSantis and probably for Rubio. 
14 points, 10 to 14 points. I'm still skeptical, but it definitely feels more plausible than ever before. And there are multiple strands of evidence pointing to the direction that this is a real possibility. So stay tuned. That is going to be a fascinating margin to watch less than two weeks from today. The Guy Benson Show will step aside here. When we come back, U.S. Senator Rick Scott of Florida will be here. He's the NRSC chairman. Let's talk about all the big races across the map with him when we come back. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through the week and halfway through the show, here on today's Guy Benson Show, our online home, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free and on demand after the program is over, shortly past 6 p.m. Eastern Time. With us once again is U.S. Senator Rick Scott, Republican of Florida, who is the chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee. And, Senator, welcome back to the show. It's always great to be with you. We, uh, as you saw with the debate last night with Fetterman and Oz, you know, the Democrats are radical. Um, their positions are radical, and they don't want to stand behind them, and we're going to beat them. What do you think about the debate last night? I mean, there's the substance of it and the things that John Fetterman has stood for and said for many years. Then there was also just sort of the spectacle of that exchange and a lot of Fetterman's, I think, pretty obvious struggles. Well, I, I think it's consistent with the other debates. Um, and the reason why we do well with these debates is that they don't want to defend their positions. And often they have to change their positions. Like you watched last night with Fetterman, took a different position on fracking, changed his position on fracking. He started talking about how he cares about crime, even though he wants to release what about a third of the uh, felons in the state and legalize all drugs. Uh, so he, you know, he wasn't, they, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't explain their position, but that's been going on all across the country. Um, and that's why J.D. Vances and Herschel Walker and Blake Master, all these guys are doing so well because, you know, the Biden agenda is unpopular. The Democrats know it's unpopular. The Democrat position has been radical. They've been governing as radicals. And now they're trying to walk away from it as fast as they can. And it's not going to work. Let's just linger on Pennsylvania a slight bit more because – I keep looking at the polls in this race, and of course I'm a little bit jaundiced here because I remember so much of the polling being bad in Pennsylvania for a number of cycles, not terribly reliable. So that, of course, comes into play. Nevertheless, John Fetterman has still led in virtually every poll that I've seen. I think there was one that was a tie, one that had Oz slightly ahead. All the other ones have Fetterman up by two to six points. Based on what you're seeing internally from the campaign, you know, you have, I'm sure, access to some of the best information out there. How confident are you that Dr. Oz can win in 13 days? He's going to win, and, he, and here, here's why. Um, he, he had to get, you know, past a very divisive primary he went through where he had $54 million for the attack against him. And so what he's had to do is explain who he is, and what we've done with him is explain exactly who Fetterman is. And when you, when you look at this roaring inflation we have, People are mad. The crime, they're mad. Um, and it, so so it's, taken, it's taken time. 
Um, but look at the turnout model. Look at the numbers. We're seeing unbelievable turnout on the Republican side. No energy anywhere in the country on the Democrat side. I was up in uh, Pennsylvania uh, campaigning for Dr. Oz yesterday, and we had big rallies. People, you know, they care. They're out there. They're focused. And by the way, the other reason we're going to win is these House races. Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, and Tom Emmer have done a great job. They're going to get a majority, and they're getting the vote out. That's why I've worked hard to build a good relationship with them, because as a team, they'll help us get the vote out, um, can't, you know, uh, district by district, and that's how we're going to win statewide. So yeah, Oz is going to win. He's worked his butt off. Every time I talk to him, I talk to him almost every day. He's at an event, going to an event, just left an event. He is the hardest working campaigner. Yeah, no, he is. That's definitely true. He's out there. He's meeting Pennsylvanians. He's working very hard. And there's a contrast there with John Fetterman having nothing to do with Fetterman's you know, uh, health condition, but just John Fetterman's entire life, not really doing a lot of hard work ever on anything, including jobs that he's been elected to in the past. Meanwhile, you mentioned a number of other races. I think that a lot of Republicans at this point are sort of banking on holding all the current GOP seats with the one question mark being Pennsylvania. Ron Johnson seems to be ahead in Wisconsin, Ted Budd in North Carolina, J.D. Vance in Ohio, Marco Rubio up double digits in a new poll today. So barring some sort of really significant surprise in one of those or some other race, then you start looking ahead past Pennsylvania to some pickup opportunities for the Republicans. It seems like the conventional wisdom senator is that the strongest one for a while has been Nevada. Adam Laxalt, that campaign against Catherine Cortez Masto. I am always one who is skeptical of people acting like something is in the bag. The polling has Laxalt ahead just by a little tiny bit, not a huge margin. I know some of the early voting tabulations are looking pretty good for Republicans. What can you tell us about Nevada? Well, I was out campaigning there about well, four days ago with Adam. Um, he's running a great race. Uh, so is the gov- So is a Republican candidate for governor. Lombardi's running a great race. Together, I think they're both going to win. We've got a big grassroots effort there on the Hispanic side. As you know, I've always been able to win the Hispanic vote. And what you're seeing this year is across the country, Hispanics are coming our way because they're fed up with the Democrats. So I think I think Adam's going to have uh, actually a very big win because there's no reason to vote for Cortez Masto. Uh, she's never gotten anything done. She's not energized her base. And Adam has. We had a we had we were up in uh, Reno and had actually a, a very big rally there. Um, you know, I, I do this every day, so I can't remember what day it was. But uh, the um, but so I, I, he's going to have a big win. But I think we've got others. Uh, Herschel Walker is going to win. Uh, we've explained who Warnick is now, and people don't like it. They don't like a pastor that kicks people out of their out of the church apartment complex for being a dollar behind the rim. They don't like a pastor that that abuses his wife, and that's exactly who Warnick is. They don't like a pastor that votes against Georgia, votes for basically the way Chuck Schumer tells them to vote. So, well, and uh, a pastor who's in there. favor of late-term abortion, right, all the way up to the moment of birth, as he. Uh, you know, does that as a man of the cloth. I think even some pro-choice people are like that. That is beyond what we can support. However, on that issue of abortion, there's another report out today that there's a second woman coming forward alleging that Herschel Walker had facilitated an abortion for her. I know we've been through this with round one. He's denied it. I'm not sure if I buy the denials, but that's what he has said. And voters seem to have moved past that news cycle. Here's another woman coming forward. Same publication, The Daily Beast. What's your reaction to that story? 
Well, this is what Democrats do. They just they just throw trash at, at Republican candidates, and it's it's wrong. They don't want to talk. They don't want to talk about the issue. I mean, you know, Warnick can't. They say he cannot, and he hasn't um, been able to come out and say uh, anything about this the apartment complex because they keep doing it. Even after the articles came out, they evicted people like the next day. I mean, so like, this is what Democrats do. They just go trash Republicans. They don't want to talk about issues. Uh, one thing they did last night at the debate in, in Pennsylvania, they actually talked about issues, which was really good. Uh, because on the, in, that, in that vein, we win. We win easily. So that's what they have to do. They have to go, oh, they'll throw this. Oh, they'll accuse you of this and they'll accuse you of that. I mean, this is like, like what they did to Kavanaugh. They just accuse people of things, hoping people will walk away from them. So if Walker says, you know, in all of these cases, nope, not true, you believe him? Yes. Okay. Do you think he could win? Because you're sounding pretty optimistic about that race. The polls show it almost exactly tied. Of course, Georgia has that quirk in their election law, which is the runoff. If no one gets to 50 plus 1 percent, there's a runoff. Weeks later, we all learned that lesson, I think, for Republicans very painfully in 2021 when the Democrats were down on election night and then rallied and got a lot more turnout for that runoff election. And they swept them with a lot of Republicans sitting at home. Is there a possibility in your mind, based on what you know, what you're seeing, that Herschel Walker wouldn't just be ahead on election night in 13 days, but could perhaps avoid a runoff and win outright? Right now, the polls I see, he's going to win outright. And and by the way, he, Warnick has got a problem. We've explained who he is. His approval is down to 40 percent, 40 percent for a sitting U.S. senator, 40 percent. That's as bad as Biden. Biden wouldn't get reelected in any of these swing states. And so if you if you look at Warnick, he's not going to win. And by the way, Herschel's, Herschel has done really well. Look at the debate. I mean, Herschel's a caring person who cares about the state and cares about talking about the issues. All Warnie can do is, is you know, try to attack people. And that's, that's what they're doing. They're trying to throw things at, at Herschel and, you know, and not talk about the issues. Brand new poll out of Arizona just dropped today. I believe it was a Democratic poll that has the Senate race out in the desert tied. 47-47 is the number that I saw between the incumbent Mark Kelly and Blake Masters, the Republican challenger, who I think months ago was sort of seen as this underwhelming candidate. He wasn't raising any money. We've had him on the show. I've been impressed by him. He had a very good debate against Mark Kelly. That huge money advantage that the Democrats were sitting on hasn't really helped Kelly very much. And now this race is very much a jump ball. I talk to people on the ground there who say uh, they believe that Masters absolutely can win this thing, which maybe seemed more dubious not that long ago. What is your read on Arizona? I was out there. There's unbelievable ground groundswell support. Had big rallies with uh, with Blake Master. Carrie Lake is also running a great race in the governor's race, which is going to help um, Blake also. And and by the way, we've done the exact same thing there. We started early. We defined Kelly early. Uh, his approvals are not very good because people don't like the fact that he voted against border security three times in Arizona. He voted against it and then he goes home and lies about it. So he he lies about it being bipartisan. He's not he's he's one of the most partisan people out there. He votes exactly the way Chuck Schumer tells him to vote. That's not where Arizona is. And so I believe I believe Blake is going to have a nice win because Kerry Blake is going to have a win and people are getting to know who Blake Master is. A little bit of an eyebrow raiser yesterday with the National Republicans and the group that you're chairing, the NRSC, competing again, coming back in on the New Hampshire race. A couple surveys showing that one within the margin of error. Maggie Hassan still ahead, 
but not by a comfortable margin at this point. She sounds, based on a quote I saw of her, uh, a little bit rattled, a little bit nervous about the race. It seems like the Republicans are still uh, perhaps trying to come back there, but you guys are putting resources into the Granite State. Why? Well, Don Bolenick's going to win. So what we did is we moved our resources to other states because Mitch McConnell's super PAC was there with a big buy. And so we, we put more money into Pennsylvania and, and Arizona and Nevada in particular and Georgia, those. And so when the, his uh, McConnell super PAC not, decided not to participate, we went back in. And we're going to do everything we can help do to help uh, Don Bolnick win. I think he's going to win. Maggie Hassan, we defined her earlier. Her approval ratings were down, are down to like 44%. She's not going to win a statewide race in because the problem she's got is people know her. She was a governor. She's a sitting uh, senator, and she's not well liked because she's voted basically with Chuck Schumer. And that's not you don't think about. It. Kristen Nunu is going to win hands down the governor's race, and so they're not going to elect a, you know in the same vein. They're going to not elect somebody that votes 100 percent of the time with Chuck Schumer, and that's what she does. Whatever Chuck Schumer tells her to do, she says she she does it. Last but not least, Senator Scott. We have had Joe O'Day on this show a few times. We just had Tiffany Smiley again out in Washington State. So those two races, Colorado, Washington, how big of a red wave would there need to be for one or both of them to win? They're clearly harder states. They've run great races. They're barely behind. So if we have a good, if we have a good turnout, and if you look at all, you know, guys, if you look at all the numbers right now, if you, we're having a big turnout. There's no energy on the Democrat side. There's energy on our side. So they have a shot. This continues all the way through Election Day. Um, I mean, look at Tiffany. She's outraised two to one, Patty Murray. Because the problem these, some of these individuals have is Patty Murray's well-known in her state, and she's not well-liked. Uh, ben is just not well-known in his state uh, in Colorado. So I think Joe Day and Tiffany Smiley have a really good chance of winning. By the way, I just have to ask you this. It's not on a Senate race, but I watched the Florida gubernatorial debate this week in your state. And to me, it was not even really a contest. But the Democrat in that race, Charlie Chris, is a guy that you're familiar with. You also ran against him for governor. He's pursued the governorship multiple times under multiple different party banners. He was a Republican, then an independent, then a Democrat. You had the whole little issue with his personal fan on the stage back in 2014. I remember he had the fan with him against DeSantis. Uh, what do you make of, of Charlie Crist and the race he's running for his old job, I guess, back when he was a conservative Republican or pretending to be one, and, and his chances this year? Well, I don't think he has much of a chance of winning. You know, what's happened is with you know good Republican leadership, the state has moved to be more Republican. Uh, we have way more now uh, registered Republicans. When I got elected as governor in 2010, we had 480,000 more registered Democrats. And now we have, I think, close to 300,000 more registered Republicans. So I don't think Charlie has much of a chance. There's nothing that he can run on. Uh, so I think he'll have a very difficult time. And, and you know, the uh, our candidates up and down the ticket. We've got a lot of House candidates. We might we think we have a shot of picking up quite a few uh, House uh, seats this year in Florida. So I, I think we're going to have a good red wave uh, in Florida this year. U.S. Senator Rick Scott, Republican of Florida, chairman of the NRSC, all eyes on the Senate races 13 days from right now. Senator, appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Scott. Have a great day. Bye bye. You bet. And the Guy Benson show resumes after this short break. Guy Benson will be right back. We continue here on the Guy Benson Show. Sort of a weird story playing out over on Capitol Hill this week. 
I was asked about it earlier this morning on America's Newsroom. Bill Hemmer had me on to discuss the House Progressive Caucus. A few dozen of the lefty members of the House Democrats signed a letter urging the Biden administration to engage in urgent talks with Putin and with the Russians to try to get some sort of off-ramp for this invasion that the Russians have inflicted on the people of Ukraine. And this very much flies in the face of sort of the Biden administration approach to this and the broad American approach to this overall on a bipartisan basis. I know there are some conservatives who disagree and obviously some progressives who disagree, but very much not what is in the mainstream thinking at the moment. But they signed this letter, about 30 of them, basically saying we need urgent peace talks now, engage the Russians, engage Putin. Whereas the official policy, the U.S. policy, is no, we want to help the Ukrainians win. The negotiations and the diplomacy can happen after the Russians lose and the Ukrainians win. Now, whether you agree with it or not, that is what they sent in this letter. And there was a big backlash, including from Democrats, who were teeing off on their colleagues and saying this is basically a sop to Putin. This is a cave. This is appeasement at exactly the wrong time. It got fairly ugly. Then you got some backtracking starting. Some of the signatories to the letter sort of unsigned the letter and put out statements saying, oh, wait, you know, never mind. I don't really believe quite that. And then the Progressive Caucus just rescinded the whole letter. They retracted the entire letter. This is Congresswoman Jayapal's group from Washington State. And she put out a statement that made no sense to me. It's like, oh, well, we drafted the letter months ago. And then it was put out in error by the staff and it wasn't vetted and it wasn't meant to be this way. And so the letter's gone. Well, did these people sign it or not? Was it written months ago? Did they sign it months ago or more recently? Do they believe what's in the letter or do they not believe what's in the letter? If they did at the time, if it really was at the time, and they don't anymore, why? And how is it possible to blame this on staff like accidentally hitting the send button on an email when it was leaked to the Washington Post and put out in a press release simultaneously, this was a coordinated decision that they made. It's like, oh, well, the staff did it. It's just sort of an error. I take responsibility, which isn't real. She's throwing staff under the bus. And the whole explanation just defies logic. Seems like a big, totally unnecessary self-inflicted wound and just a baffling call where you have in the final stretch of an important campaign, Democrats attacking each other on Capitol Hill on a foreign policy issue that overall has united a lot of the country. Uh, Just a mess. As I said on TV earlier, I don't think this is how Pelosi and company drew it up. And their explanations, at least on the progressive side, about how this happened and why it happened, it's just they don't wash at all. Doesn't make any sense. Someone's lying. We'll see if we ever get to the bottom of it, but it's still an interesting curiosity here in the late stages of the election cycle. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up next. Martha McCallum is here. Looking forward to that. She's in Pennsylvania today. We will talk about that debate from last night and more with Martha straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson.
It's the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show, our final hour of today's program. Thank you very much for tuning in. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time, that's the full show. 5 to 6 Eastern is the happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, our friends over there. Really delicious beverage, alcoholic, 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. Check out where they are sold near you as they continue to expand by popular demand, thelongdrink.com, thelongdrink.com. Our website here, Guy Benson Show. Com, where the podcast is always free every single day after the show is over. You can follow us on social at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and on Instagram. With us now is Martha McCallum, executive editor and anchor of The Story, every weekday at 3 p.m. Eastern on the Fox News Channel, also co-anchor of Fox News Politics, author of the book Unknown Valor, and she also has a podcast, The Untold Story, with Martha McCallum at foxnewspodcast.com, and she is in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania today. Martha, great to have you back. Hi, Guy. Great to be with you. Well, obviously, the biggest story in American politics today is what happened last night in the Keystone State, where you were broadcasting from today. I'm just curious what you are seeing and hearing on the ground in PA after a highly anticipated debate that was, I'll call it memorable. It was memorable indeed. It was painful. I think it's a word that has been used a lot, Guy. And today there are a lot of questions about why the Democrat Party of Pennsylvania decided to put this man forward in the condition that he is clearly in. And it's a it's a fair question. I think all of us, as we watched last night, felt for him. Uh, He's in a difficult situation. We all wish him a complete recovery. But the fact of the matter is that they decided to do this debate. They could have kept him under wraps, you know, until the very end. Another huge element here is that almost 10 percent of the vote is already in in Pennsylvania. And they wanted to do this debate at the very bitter end of the election Mm -hmm. process. And that's what has happened last night. So it's going to be very interesting. On the point of the debate, I think as people in the media Journalists, we want to see debates. We want to see the candidates putting themselves out there, answering questions, going toe-to-toe. I think that's good for the country. It's good for democracy, transparency, all of it. From a political perspective, we have seen some Democrats making the political decision not to debate their opponents this year. A couple high-profile examples of that. Just from the perspective of the Democrats, I wonder if they are now regretting making the choice to put Fetterman out there, because I think they would have really gotten hit pretty hard and it would have been damaging to them if they had pulled out of the debate or not agreed to the debate, given the opacity around his condition. But that would have been worse than Fetterman going out there and doing what we all just saw. I I wonder if you agree with that. You know, there's a lot of questions about why they didn't bring forward Malcolm Kenyatta or who's the lieutenant governor in, in Pennsylvania or Connor Lamb, who lost his own um, earlier race and is a is a congressman whose seat you know is now up. So they had choices that they could have made, and I think there's going to be some good investigative reporting into into exactly what happened here and how they decided that he would stay and that he would continue on. What did his wife have to say? What did the people mm-hmm. around him have to say? The campaign. They all should face a lot of questions about whether or not this has been fair to John Fetterman. But let's, you know, the, the most recent polls that came out, the CNN poll showed Fetterman up by six. And so I, I think we all, and the, Nas- the Philadelphia Inquirer says he won the debate. 
Okay, and then you've got columnists at MSNBC who are saying, who are saying that you know this raises a lot of questions about how we handle debates and how we do campaigns because clearly we want people who are, I believe they use the word disabled, or um, to be able to run for office in America. So so get ready because there's going to be a lot of interpretation of this that's going to try to to bolster him in these final 13 days, guy. Well, I mean the spin is just nuts, and we've talked a bit about it already on the show today. Yes, there is that CNN poll that has Fetterman up six out a couple days ago. CNN's polling, especially in the Midwest, has been god-awful in the last couple cycles in terms of predictive value. They've been off by six to eight points in some of these races, 12 points famously in Florida a few years ago. So I really take that pollster with a big grain of salt. Uh, But, you know, be that as it may, there's a CBS poll that has Fetterman up two. That was all before this debate. And while a good chunk of the votes are already in, and I think it's nuts to have people voting before there are any debates for this exact reason, the overwhelming majority is still out. And I just have to think that if this is truly a knife's edge kind of race, Martha, a lot of people who may not have been really paying close attention to the race had some curiosity. Okay, finally, they're going to debate. How is Fetterman really? And they tuned in. I mean, it was not a pretty picture. I, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to be mean about the guy. I have all sorts of problems with him ideologically and, and his record and the way that he's lived his life and the way that he's run previous campaigns. Actually, this one, too. I, we're all rooting for him to get better health wise. But I mean, it was cringy. Painful is the word that you used. I, I would have to agree. Casual voters tuning in. I don't know. My instinct is that a good number of them would say, oh, wow, I don't think that guy can really be a senator. Maybe we'll start to see that reflected in the polls. But, I mean, it's awfully late in the game here. It is awfully late in the game here. And, you know, I I think that your average Pennsylvania voter cares more, based on the polling, about inflation. They're very, very passionate about what's going on with crime in this state. The economy is not fantastic in Pennsylvania. And Mehmet Oz has done a pretty good job of trying to meet people where they are and talk to them about the things that they care the most about. And what they have heard from John Fetterman is, you know, last night we just got just such vagaries. I mean, every answer was just so vague. You know, how will you how will you bring down the cost of education? Well, we'll make it more manageable. We'll make it we'll make it less expensive. We'll make it cheaper. Um, his specifics, he had absolutely nearly almost zero specifics in his answers last night. And, you know, there, there, you have to be capable to do whatever job you are being considered for in American life. And there's a great argument that he should have just, you know, taken himself out and run again when, when he is better. And we see wonderful full-stroke recovery, and we do hope that that's what happens for him. But can he serve right now? And and that yeah. is a question that, that he failed last night. So um, we'll see what, what the voters think as they head into this. But, you know, I, I think you're going to get a lot of folks. And the other thing that could happen is that you get people who just stay home, who don't vote because they're disheartened by what they saw. They wanted to vote for him. And now they're not quite sure what to do. And his stroke, I would point out, was around six months ago. So this is where he is. This is his level of capacity now, almost half a year later. And that's, I think, another element of the concern here that people are talking about. And it's not cruel and it's not bullying and it's not ableism to talk about it. I think it's just insane spin to try to pretend that people who saw what we all saw last night 
are like, oh, well, if, if you have a problem with it, you're going to talk about it, like, then shame on you. I just don't think that indignation is going to fly. But I guess we'll find out soon enough. Meanwhile, next week, on Tuesday, you and Brett Bayer are going to co-moderate a forum with J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan in Ohio. This has been a very close race. J.D. Vance and the Republicans appear to have a lead. There's been some bad blood in the race. They've debated already twice. There have been some fireworks in those debates. It's gotten personal. What can you tell us about next Tuesday? Yeah, I just want to say one more quick thing about sure. um, about this race in Pennsylvania. And I think Jim Car- Jim Garrity made a great point this morning. He said, you remember when Rick Perry couldn't remember thing number three, uh, cabinet yes. official cabinet number three that he was going to not, you know, that he wanted to uh, eliminate. And that was it for him. And compare that to what we saw last night. Okay, so moving on to Ohio, where, yes, Brett and I will be next week. We're going to have a um, town hall forum with J.D. Vance, town town hall forum with Tim Ryan. Uh, These two are slugging it out in Ohio. Uh, Ryan has complained that he's not getting enough backing from the Democrat Party, that they have kind of left him out there to dry. It's a tight race. Vance, on his side, required a tremendous amount of money from the Senate Leadership Committee, over $20 million that they never expected to have to spend in Ohio. So this is a really interesting race. It's Rob Portman's seat. It would be a hold for the Republicans. Um, So we're going to go out there and talk to both of them tomorrow, uh, next week, excuse me, and uh, we're looking forward to it. Martha, I want to play you a soundbite from Justice Samuel Alito on the Supreme Court. He made this remark at the Heritage Foundation. It's gotten a lot of attention talking about that now infamous leak of the Dobbs decision, the draft decision before it came out. And here's what he had to say about it in Cut 29. The leak also made those of us who were thought to be in the majority in support of overruling Roe and Casey targets for assassination because it gave people a rational reason to think they could prevent that from happening by killing one of us. I mean, difficult words to hear. I would point out that some critics are saying, oh, this is a vast exaggeration. This is just political gamesmanship by Alito. But there was an assassination plot against Justice Kavanaugh at his house. There were threats to multiple justices, people, you know, mobs outside their houses. So I don't really, unless you missed multiple news cycles, which maybe people did because it was not covered very heavily elsewhere. But I think the idea that there were threats to these justices is completely undeniable. And then part two of this, Martha, is it just reminds us again about the leak. And the source of that leak is still undetermined and a mystery All these months later, I think that is still a subplot in American politics that needs an answer. Agreed. I I thought his words were were very stunning, very heavy, the reality of them. And I was reminded that we never heard that that would have been a a perfect moment for the president of the United States to say, look, this – cannot happen. We cannot threaten the lives of our Supreme Court justices, no matter how unhappy we might be with one of their decisions. I think that's a moment that would have actually won President Biden a a lot of points for being the kind of unifier that he claimed he wanted to be. And the other thing that really brings to mind when you when you look at what was happening around that time with these protests and with this assassination attempt at Kavanaugh's house, now what we're hearing is months later, it appears that this issue has dropped down dramatically in terms of what people care about. 
And I feel like my entire life I've watched this debate over Roe v. Wade as if the world would completely end if it were ever overturned. And now mm-hmm. it's fallen so far down the list that it will be definitely one of the big storylines on election night. Did it matter? Where did it matter? And did it actually decide any elections across the country? Because I think I think that's a huge question, and it's important because it goes to the heart of whether, you know, lobbyists are actually in to, in touch with the way that most people feel and what they care about the most. Yeah, and you're absolutely right to remind us that the president did not personally condemn the assassination plot against Justice Kavanaugh. The White House did not condemn the mobs outside justices' homes. They kind of said, "Hey, that's you know part of the process here." And the Speaker of the House, I will just add was asked to condemn the firebombings, the violence, the terrorist acts against pro-life centers, and she specifically refused to do so. I mean, so I know that we have a lot of narratives out there about political violence. It just seems like the the powers that be and a lot of the folks who believe themselves to be guardians of democracy or what have you, and certainly the moral betters of conservatives, uh, they have very selective tastes when it comes to the types of things that they find outrageous versus acceptable or ignorable Lastly, Martha, I do have to ask you about U.K. politics. You spent a lot of time over there, of course, following and covering the royal family. We've been talking recently with you about the death of the queen. And it's not like things have gotten any less tumultuous in the U.K. since her passing. Another prime minister just entered the fray yesterday, the third in, what, two months? The Tory party in total disarray. The king with his first prime minister to meet after the 44-day stint for Liz Truss. It's pretty wild across the pond right now. It's very wild across the pond. And I think in many ways, the things that ushered Liz Truss into power, which were that she wanted to return a growth paradigm to the U.K. She wanted to do drilling in the North Sea. She wanted to allow corporations to have um, you know, lower regulations, a lower tax structure in order to stimulate growth in the country. People were calling her, you know, sort of, is she a, is she a Thatcherite prime minister? And the underlying parts of the U.K. economy, which are that they have an incredibly onerous pension system of defined benefit plans that reach deep into public and private entities that is completely unsupported by the structures that they've put in place and is about to collapse. That was the problem. And Liz Truss was there for 44 days. So they they pinned a heck of a lot on her um, and allowed her to collapse. And now you're having someone who sounds like he wants to placate a number of those concerns. But they're going to have to deal with some of the deep financial structure problems that they have in the U.K., some of which we have here, too. Um, And I think that, you know, I I think in many ways she was a a fall woman uh, for for a lot of very deep-seated issues, and uh, I think there was an unfairness to it in many ways. Yeah, there's mathematical realities that come into play at some point. Maybe she was a little incoherent about the way she tried to set the agenda forward and was not that persuasive, and then I think announcing programs, then backtracking and sort of the retreat wasn't good, seemingly pleasing no one at all. But, yeah, at some point there has to be a reckoning. That is the math. We have similar problems here, as you note. Uh, but really fascinating to watch with our cousins over there in the in the UK. The Brits having a bumpy time here uh, politically, certainly. Martha McCallum, our guest, anchor of the story every day at 3 p.m. Eastern on the Fox News Channel. She and Brett hosting that Ohio Senate Forum next Tuesday. Catch her podcast, The Untold Story, at foxnewspodcast.com. And buy her book, Unknown Valor. Martha, always great to talk to you. Always great to talk to you, Guy. Thank you very much for having me. We'll see you soon. 
Looking forward to it. And the Guy Benson Show is back right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It is the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Well, we've been having some fun over the last week or two with a soundbite the Vice President Kamala Harris, who was rhapsodizing about her love for electric school buses. And amazingly, she did another event today about school buses. I guess she was saying that fuel-powered school buses inhibit kids' ability to learn or something like that, which makes no sense. This is part of their pivot to electric vehicles. But she wanted to connect with her audience, as she has tried to do and failed so many times, on relatable things like Venn diagrams. But here she was earlier, once again, talking about yellow school buses. This is an audience of adults, not children. Cut 33. So here's the thing. Who doesn't love a yellow school bus, right? Can you raise your hand if you love a yellow school bus, right? Just there's something about... And and most of us, many of us, went to school on the yellow school bus, right? And it's part of of our our experience growing up. It's part of, you know, a nostalgia and a memory. Here's the thing. Don't we all love yellow school buses? Isn't that fun? Are we having fun? Isn't this fun and also a little bit funny? Gosh, it is cringe central with this woman. Like every time she goes and says anything. But I'm not complaining because it gives us another opportunity to play this. The wheels on the bus go okay. round and round. Okay. The wheels on the bus go okay. all through the town. If a week or two from now we're still playing that, someone needs to step in. But I mean, hey, look, this is the perfect reason to do it. Isn't it fun? Aren't we having fun? The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Happy Hour, it's the Guy Benson Show from Washington, D.C. Earlier on today's program, right out of the gate, we opened with Tucker Carlson, host of Tucker Carlson Tonight on Fox News Channel. Here's part of my discussion with Tucker about the midterm elections. Did you happen to catch last night's debate out of Pennsylvania? Yeah. I mean, it was actually live during my show, but I watched it later. And I was really, you know, I felt bad for Fetterman, to be totally honest, and angry at his wife for allowing this. You know, I've been married for more than 30 years, and if I tried to do something like that, my wife would be like, no, I love you. You can't do that. You can't run for Senate. You're brain damaged. What? No. And, like, where's his wife? Honestly, I thought it was humiliating. It was awful. I cringed. I mean, I don't like Fetterman. I don't support his views or whatever, but I'm a human being, and I just I hated watching that. Um, but I also thought it said something pretty ominous about the Democratic Party. It's like, why would you run a guy like that? He had a stroke in May. Like, they've known this a long time. It's a Democratic-leaning state. They could have swapped in somebody else. They had time. They didn't. And it, it really makes you feel like they don't care. Like, they think that they've got the system so wired. They own the media. They own the tech companies. They control the national conversation. They can run a mentally defective guy and get him elected. That's a very bad attitude. That's not a, a democratic attitude. That's a oligarchical attitude, and I, I just don't like it at all. 
I mean, to me, it's a story about him and his health. And I mean, I agree with you on his record and his viewpoints. He is one of the least appealing candidates to me personally that I've seen in a very long time in American politics. And I've been very outspoken about that for a number of reasons. Uh, Like you, I have compassion for him and his situation. I hope he fully recovers. He clearly has not even come close to fully recovering. And yet we've been sort of told for a while now that, oh, he's coming right along and he doesn't have to release the records because, you know, that's too much. But look, he's he's appearing at events and his wife says he's fine and he occasionally says a few words and here's a doctor's note or what have you. Lefty journalists saying, oh, we've spoken to him at length. And, you know, this this NBC woman was lying about he can't make small talk. They all piled on her for giving just a tiny sliver of the truth about him. Obviously, uh, this is not just about him and his campaign. It's also about a national media complex that I think sort of set up this really tough to watch moment last night through omission, lies of omission, exaggeration or just sort of looking the other way. That's my view. It's a really no. I think it's a really smart point. Um, they lied about it. They're totally corrupt. I've spent my whole life in this. My dad was in it. I always thought it was an honorable business. I, you know, none of my children would ever go into journalism because it's just so disgusting, and everyone knows it's corrupt. And it's, now it's just very obvious. Charlotte Alter of quote Time Magazine, which I was surprised to learn still exists, comes out yesterday with these tweets like, "Oh, I talked to Fetterman. He's actually pretty good in person, but." You know, he's not good in large groups. He won't be good. You know, like she's just reading the campaign talking points over Twitter. She's just mm-hmm. openly shilling. She's supposed to be a reporter. What a hack. And so many of them did that. And anyway, the, the whole thing, I agree with you. It's just deeply revealing. Like this is an impressive country. It's a huge country. It's a continental country, 340 million people. You should have impressive candidates run for the, you know, the most powerful legislative body in the world. You shouldn't put up John Fetterman. You know, you also shouldn't have Dianne Feinstein in the Senate. She's totally senile, and everyone knows it. Her own staffers say it, and they're protecting her too. It's like it's not even about the person. Again, I, I said – and you said the same thing. You feel sorry for the man, and I, I mm-hmm. mean that. But what about the country he's supposed to be leading? You know, it's like no one even cares. It's about his personal journey of recovery. Well, okay, I've got a personal journey of recovery too. I'm not going to bore you with it. Do you know what I mean? It's not about him. It's about the rest of us. And um, I just think the whole – it's just like, ah, it's a window into the narcissism and the cynicism of the establishment. It really is. Well, and now they're trying to gaslight us like, oh, well, maybe it wasn't really so bad and the campaign's blaming the closed captioning, which I'll get into. We're going to have some of the audio of this debate a little bit later on this hour. And then now the big talking point is it's ableist and cruel and bullying to even notice what happened last night. Like it was just undeniable right in front of our faces. Like, well, it's cruel to talk about. And Dr. Oz is a bully. It's just it makes your head spin. Wait, that's so I'm I'm a little out of it. Um, I just took my dog for a run. So I'm I have I've been (laughs) out of it for the last two hours. You're better off. Trust me, you're better off. I mean, I'm. I'm a little surprised people would even say that. I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised by anything at this stage, but but I mean, it's like it it tells you though they don't even care what voters think. I mean, I just I had this thought last night as I'm reading about this and this morning as I'm watching it, you know, they're going to tell us you know, the Wednesday after the election that he got 81 million votes and you're going to be like required to believe it or something. It's like if, if the only way you would run a candidate like that is if you thought you couldn't lose. 
And I just think that's really creepy. Like in a democracy, you should just be very aware at all times of what voters think and always trying to please them, always trying to represent their best interests. You shouldn't like shove senile candidates down the throat of voters like they did in the last presidential election like they're doing in this one. I think they should be punished for that. Like there are plenty of smart liberals who I disagree with but who are still you know, obviously pretty impressive people. Why not Competent. run one of those? Yeah, competent Fetterman. Not only – and I, I don't want to seem like I'm mocking his injury. I feel bad for him. But he's also stroke aside an utterly unimpressive person. No, that's who right. Who was on – you know, he's like this self-indulgent rich kid who lived off of his parents until his mid-40s, who's done nothing. He was the mayor of Braddock, Pennsylvania, one of the most screwed up towns in the entire commonwealth. And it got no better as mayor, and he ginned up all this publicity about how he's putting in art galleries or whatever, and then just left the place the shambles that it remains. And it's well, like, and then he became lieutenant governor of the whole state and didn't show up for that job, you know, most of the time. It's a sort of this this ridiculous story that is even close to a Senate seat. Tucker Carlson, we only have a little bit of time left, but I do want to play you one more soundbite. This is from a different debate last night, New York gubernatorial debate, a very interesting exchange between Kathy Hochul, the incumbent Democrat, Lee Zeldin, the Republican, challenging her on crime. This is the issue on which Zeldin, the Republicans, are surging in that state. Listen to cut 26. This governor, who still to this moment, we're at, what are we, halfway through the debate, she still hasn't talked about locking up anyone committing any crimes. Okay. Anyone is- who commits a crime... Under our laws, especially with the change they made to bail, has consequences. I don't know why that's so important to you. I don't know why that's so important to you, locking up criminals and keeping them locked up. I don't know why that's so important to you. She said sort of incredulous to Lee Zeldin. Your thoughts, Tucker? I mean, I thought she was an utter fraud since she got that job without being elected when they ran Cuomo. I I never liked Cuomo, but like... What did he do wrong exactly? No one can even remember. That was such a, such a scam, that whole thing. Um, but what really strikes me is Lee Zeldin, who I've known for a while. And, you know, he's kind of your garden variety Republican. I don't know what happened to Lee Zeldin, but he became, like, really good. <laughs> you know, sometimes <laughs> the pressure of a campaign changes a person. It makes him more impressive or less impressive. You know, pressure changes people. And Lee Zeldin became way better at explaining what he believes. His beliefs became sharper and more relevant. Like he just became a really good politician in the process of this race. I'm like, I had him on the other night. I was like, I couldn't believe it was him. And I I didn't want to sound like patronizing or anything, but I but I meant it. I wanted to say, holy smokes, Lee Zeldin, you're killing it. I never thought you could be this good, but he is. My full interview with Tucker Carlson, our Fox News colleague, available online, GuyBensonShow.com. Also on our free podcast, The Whole Show, every day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, there is a shortage of a beverage that is apparently looming in America. It has producer Christine rather concerned. Also, a fast food item, perhaps a polarizing one, is coming back but not for long We'll discuss that as well next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Wednesday edition of the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Check out the free podcast every day. 
I saw this headline and had to immediately ask Christine about it. Apparently, a tequila shortage may soon be upon the United States of America. And the issue for Christine may not be tequila, which is not her favorite. Although, am I correct, Christine, when I recall that Quiet Wyatt was able to induce you to try some margaritas recently and you liked them? I I liked one. But as you know, sometimes one is just not enough for cookie. Um, And then, like, on the second, I was like, no. I don't I don't think so. What was it about round two that you didn't like? So I think tequila the same gives, taste, right? Yeah, it gave me a little heartburn. And I don't know, I just I just didn't like it as much as I like the other one. I'm not gonna say it, but you know which one. Which one? You know <laughs> you know which one. It says you could maybe help us with this. Which which is the other one that you're talking about? My Tito's. I sure love my Tito's. Oh, right, which is a brand. Why aren't you saying the word? Because, You've always been very proud. <laughs> well, Dan is trying to to work with me behind the scenes to say vodka. Yes, like a speech therapist. <laughs> Not really, like a it's friend. It's like the King's Speech, but the cookie version, where she's trying to learn how to say the name of her favorite spirit, her favorite adult beverage liquor variety, because you typically say... How do you say it? Vodka. Vodka. Yeah, like there's no D. Vodka. I I feel like I'm saying the D, but I guess I need to pronounce it uh, stronger. So vodka. Yeah, but can you say it a little faster, like a no. like a normal person? Vodka. <laughs> I am a normal person. Well, vodka. Vodka. Do you not hear that no. as lacking a D? It sounds correct in your head. Mm-hmm. You're saying it like V-O-C-K-A. Yeah, I mean, Vodka. you guys say that, but I, I, we, we can we could go Vodka. on and on about this. Vodka. It's Vodka. If there was a vodka shortage in America, would you <gasps> more so than mama's juice? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, guy, you know how much I love my Cosmos. That, that is true. Now, do they pair well? This is a key question. Do they pair well with McRibs? So this is the McDonald's sandwich. I think it is technically a sandwich, which is supposed to be rib-related meat-looking activity on a bun. And I always hear about the McRib when there's a big ad campaign that it's back. Oh, the McRib is back. And there's always stories about it and the fans going crazy that it's back and then I guess sometimes prices of pork, I don't know if it's really real pork or whatever, like they go up and so they drop it from the menu. There's always some sort of hullabaloo around the McRib. And now the latest version of it is that the McRib is returning to McDonald's, but only for the final time. It's the farewell tour of the McRib, like it's Cher or something like that or Elton John. And I guess fans are happy that it's coming back, devotees of this sandwich are pleased to be able to have it again but they are melting down that apparently at least according to the suits at mcdonald's over at mickey d's this is the last gasp no more mcrib after this this final comeback tour has anyone who works on this show actually had a mcrib ever wyatt 
No, but I've had something similar, not from McDonald's, but I used to have like in in school they used to have the the riblet sandwich as like an offer, and I've had that, but it it's gross. Dan. No, I've never had it, and my theory around it a little bit is it's not that good. I think the exclusivity of it is what people like about it because it's gone and it comes back, and I think it's not going to be gone. I'm, this is a hot take. It's going to come back maybe in like four years. It's going to be like, nope, one last time it is back. Or like by popular demand, McRib returns. Right. We couldn't keep it away forever, and so, yeah, that's probably right. Christine, big McRib gal with your vodka. <laughs> Nope, nope. Never, ever had the McRib. We are going to next Friday. Uh, some of the producers on Jimmy Fela's show are teaming up with your producers. And next Friday, we're going to have lunch and we're going to have the McRib. I think I'm in New York next Friday, right? Are you? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I am. So are you going to try to subject me to this creation? Yeah, we all have to do it. We're a team. We're a best friend team. Maybe I'll have one bite. I'll have the first bite of yours, and then I can hand it off to you, and I'll just have what I normally – and look, this is not a me-hating on McDonald's segment. I kind of like McDonald's. I like the double cheeseburger or the McDouble, which is often on the dollar menu, although I don't know with inflation if it's still a dollar. Uh, Occasionally a Big Mac, the chicken McNuggets that I don't want to think too hard about what's in them, but with the dipping sauces, sweet and sour barbecue, I'm about that. Of course, the fries. I'm not a McDonald's hater. I do prefer Wendy's overall. I've mentioned this multiple times. I like the spicy chicken sandwich, extra tomatoes. I mean, that's my go-to. I'm not above the uh, the Whopper from time to time over at the King. Then we talk about some of the more regional locations as we have on this show. We talk a lot about fast food here. We talk about In-N-Out Burger out west. We talk about Whataburger down in Texas. Recently, I was singing the praises of Zaxby's down south over the summer. I like the regional places, but in terms of the big national offerings, I think it goes Wendy's, McDonald's, Burger King in that order for me. And I like certain items from each menu. The McRib has never been, even on the curiosity list, it doesn't look natural. It doesn't look, I mean, a lot of this food doesn't, but it doesn't look like food should look that way. That's what my brain computes when it sees it. I don't know if that makes sense to you. I'm still wondering why you think you and I are going to share a sandwich together. Well, because we're best friends, Christine. That's what best friends do. And I'll just have, like, one bite, and then I'll hand it off to you, and I'll have, you know, whatever else we get. I should get a salad. I should be good. I don't need a McRib. Plus, I have to, like, perform. I've got TV over the weekend. Next weekend, I'll be in New York. A lot of pre-election stuff heading into Election Day. I can't have the McRib do awful things to me if that were to be the case. Right. right. Like, I mean, you could be sidelined for a while and that would be bad. Right. That would not help the program. But, you know, I'm the talent, Christine. I have to be here. I mean, I don't think I listen. I'm going to have the McRib and as talent as well, I'll be able to do my duties. (laughs) Wyatt is cracking up, by the way, over all of this. All right. Very quickly, what is your go to McDonald's order? This is not a McDonald's sponsored segment. I will have, you know, but now that we're thinking about it, I'm curious. Wyatt. Um, maybe just a dollar menu cheeseburger and fries, but that's, McDonald's is not my main place. I know you're a Shake Shack. Yes. Yeah, Shake Shack guy. Dan? Double cheeseburger, no onions, medium fry, Diet Coke. All right. I mean, respectable. I like the onions. Obviously, no on the Diet Coke. It's Coke Zero or bust. Christine? 
uh, crispy chicken sandwich, probably a large fry, and then dip those in sweet and sour sauce and a large Coke because McDonald's mm. Coke is the best. I would say for myself, I would get the McDouble, which is basically a double cheeseburger, and then a six-piece McNugget with both dipping sauces that I mentioned earlier in the segment, a small fry, and a Coke Zero. That is just peak McDonald's right there, and I'm not going to pretend it's good for me, but it is good. And I just don't want to seem like I'm hating on them just because I'm not going to go on this McRib bandwagon. Sorry. But it will be back supposedly for the final time in the farewell tour, and they are supposedly going to get me to try it next Friday in New York. We will see about that. Back here tomorrow on the Guy Benson Show for the Thursday edition. Another packed lineup that you do not want to miss. We will talk to you then. And until then, have a great night. And thank you, as always, for listening. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.